This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. We talk about book things, publishing things, things that are happening in the world and how they relate to book things. I am Rebecca Shinsky. I am joined today by Amanda Nelson while Jeff is out. It is Thursday, June 11th, 2020. And we are both coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, where Mm -hmm. all sorts of interesting things are happening. So many things. Hello, Amanda. Hi! (laughs) Christopher Columbus has discovered the bottom of a lake. Yeah, in Bird Park. (laughs) I kept trying to make up like a, in 1492, Columbus sailed Bird Lake, bye, kind of song, but it doesn't rhyme, so it it, like isn't coming together. (laughs) You know, I think it's beautiful just as it is. It is. So protesters tore down the statue of Columbus and put it in the lake is what we're talking yes. about. Yes, <laughs> and uh, the Wickham statue is down. Oh. And as of, I think, late last night, as we we're recording this, the Jefferson Davis statue is down. And as we were saying to each other right before we began this recording, it's been cool to wake up every morning in Richmond this week and find out that a different statue has been pulled down. Yeah. Um, and this also, I think, concludes the list of the ones that uh, seem to be easily removable without the use of like major uh, construction implements, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, like I don't underestimate these people, right? Uh, people <laughs> right. who are out there in the middle of the night, like bandits pulling down statues. <laughs> how do you do that sneakily? Like, how do you do that? I, I don't know. I'm really impressed, with and I want to like read a book about it in about ten years. Yeah. And because most of these monuments are on Monument Avenue, which is just a big main thoroughfare in Richmond, that's actually a neighborhood. So there are houses on either side. Like, what are the people in those houses just watching these guys tear down these? Mo- I, look, I'm so curious about how this is happening. I mean, if it's happening in my neighborhood, I'm like sneaking out at midnight to give them all cookies. Yeah. So or like just sleeping <laughs> through it because. Right. Get, go with God. Like carry on. <laughs> I've been in bed for three hours at this point. Good night. (laughs) We have lots of follow-up. And then this was a newsy week Mm -hmm. in the world of books and reading. Uh, So before we get into all of that, let's have our first sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
All right. So listener feedback. The first bit was a question from a listener um, wondering about some of the, uh, I guess, finer details of things that Jeff and I have been talking about here for a while about how the cost of publishing being located in New York City is tied to the lack of diversity Mm. in publishing in that publishers are located in these very high cost areas that um, are difficult for folks to afford to live on the kind of salaries that publishing is willing to pay people, especially at entry level um, that make it really hard if you don't have like generational wealth and parents that can pay your bills um, for folks to take for people to take those positions. And as we know, people in this country who are likely to have that kind of uh, family financial support are most likely to be white. Um, so this listener wanted to ask if the industry has put much thought into either relocating outside of high cost areas and or embracing remote work as a long-term permanent hiring strategy, not just as a temporary COVID necessity. And then they ask the big question, how Hmm. essential is it for the publishing industry to be located in higher cost areas? And how essential is it to have folks all in the same building? It's not. It's not. (laughs) These are great questions. Mm. I think pre-COVID publishing thought that it was important and thought that it was essential for just reasons, Mm -hmm. probably mostly reasons of this is how it's always been. Um, We've always been in offices together. So what what could possibly happen if we weren't Uh, those kinds of, you know, endowment effect Mm -hmm. things. Um, But just this week, there was a piece in Publishers Weekly They conducted a survey of the New York-based publishers about what reopening plans may look like post-COVID or during during COVID. I don't even know what we're calling this time period now. (laughs) Um, But pretend (laughs) post-COVID. Yeah, right. This weird interim moment um, where people are starting to re-enter the world in some capacity. Um, None of the major publishers who participated said that they expect to be bringing any staff back in any meaningful way before September. For the most part, they see the week of Labor Day as a target, but they also acknowledge that the date may not be realistic. Um, Several said they see it as a limited reopening. The survey was sent to all of the big five publishers, plus uh, Kensington, Norton, Scholastic, and Workman. Oh, and Abrams and uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And of course, there are like way too many uncertainties for anybody to make final plans, but there was consensus around this idea that it's going to be quite a while Mm -hmm. before publishers will fully reopen. Um, That'll be conditional also on what's going on with New York City's mass transit, how comfortable workers are using mass transit. Several publishers said they plan to stagger work hours, which is something that has been recommended by New York City in order to ease overcrowding. Um, Many of them are talking about phased approaches to reopening their offices. And they did, this is the, I think, really interesting part, universally acknowledge that the adaptation to work from home has been smoother and easier than anticipated. Um, Yeah, which I don't know what was happening in companies outside of the publishing industry. But I remember back in March when this was, you know, really ramping up that um, 
we were sort of talking about like waiting to see what publishers were going to do. And gosh, it seems weird that they haven't closed their offices in New York yet. And I was hearing that it was because they were conducting like work from home tests. And I think some of that was about tech systems, like could their systems support um, everybody like being remote in some capacity. But I think a lot of it also was like, what's going to happen if we can't put our eyeballs on people while they're working? Mm -hmm. Turns out, as most industries are finding, it's totally possible. It's <laughs> um, so I don't know that publishers are talking about relocating outside of high cost areas just yet. Um, there's a lot of, I think, emotional investment in mm -hmm. what it means to be New York publishing uh, and like in that scene. But it seems to me that if publishers are becoming more comfortable with people working remotely uh, and not being in the same office in New York City, that it's kind of inevitable that some of those folks are going to, you know, ex want to explore being able to do their publisher work without having to live in New York City and maybe ask about relocating and being truly remote. And that may lead eventually to decentralizing. I don't, I'd be shocked. I don't know about you, Amanda. I would be shocked if like Penguin Random House rolled out in November and was like, you know what, we're just going to go either fully remote or we're moving our offices to, to like Iowa City where it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. No. The big announcement yeah. will be like, we will hire a new person who lives in New Jersey. <laughs> let them stay there like that's gonna yeah. be my yeah I think probably this will change along those lines that like as um as remote work becomes just normalized in publishing my guess is that you know like when someone who currently is working remotely from Brooklyn quits their job maybe their employer is open to rehiring and not limiting uh that new hire to being someone who's geographically proximal to mm -hmm. to them be really interesting to see it sort of spin out that way um i would love it if you work in publishing and you think it actually is essential um for publishers to be like in new york or in these high cost areas i'd love to know um what the reasoning there mm -hmm. is genuinely curious about that you can email us at podcast if you are the emperor of one of the big five, Amanda, mm -hmm. what are you doing hmm. with, <laughs> with remote work? <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> what if you're the emperor? Let's, let's just take the fantasy all the way. You're the emperor of all big five. <laughs> okay. Yay. Oh, I like this. This is great. You're all fine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think that I would dismantle the New York publishing scene <laughs> because I don't like it. I don't like it for all the reasons y'all have already talked about on, you know, over 10 years or so, you know, it's, um, it's exclusive in a negative way. It's the cost is part of the reason why books are so expensive. Like those costs are built at the cost of keeping all those people in their freaking flat iron building is why your hardcover is 29.95. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, <laughs> It's bad for everyone. It's bad for the publishers. It's bad for readers. It's bad for writers who feel like they have to live in New York in order to make it. It's bad for everyone. So, um, but with that, you know, these are multi-million dollar corporations owned by multi-billion dollar corporations. So <laughs> right. change is necessarily slow. Um, and I think that I would probably start with, like you were mentioning, as people quit over time, 
making their hire, making the replacements be new hires who are working remotely from wherever they want to be working. Um, and just see what happened. Eventually, you won't have enough employees in an office in New York to require you to rent out the Flatiron building, and then you can go from there. So with the caveat and like the understanding that changing Penguin Random House is not going to happen overnight, even with a global health crisis, um, I think it's kind of... It's it's a sunk cost fallacy. They're mm-hmm. operating from an emotional sunk cost fallacy that we have always been here. It's it's some of that publishing awe of you know AWE of like, but New York, you know, mm-hmm. and we want to continue to feel like we're special in that way. Um, and dismantling that a little bit will require admitting that it was never really that special. Like it, we didn't really have to do this. Um, we were excluding people so that we could feel better about ourselves. Um, which nobody likes to admit. So, you know, grace to publishing Random House or whatever, but also it's silly that they're still there. <laughs> Those are my opinions. <laughs> All right. Well, before we continue, I love your opinions. Uh, let's have another sponsor. Okay, so on uh, last week's show, Jeff and I spent some time answering a question from a listener, Kenneth, who's about to graduate from high school and is considering a couple avenues of uh, which what he might major in and what kind of work he wants to do and was expressing some concerns about would working in books in some capacity negatively impact his relationship to books or his experience of books. And we weighed in. We asked for you all as listeners if you had any advice for him. And one of you did wrote uh, did write in uh, to say that um, they also – spend some time um, midway through undergrad realizing that they wanted a career in books um, but didn't quite know what to do about that and this person eventually became an academic collections librarian Ooh. and wrote in right wrote in to share their experience uh, she says that you know I don't know why Kenneth lost interest in librarianship he mentioned in his email that he had thought about it but was kind of redirecting but wanted to highlight that there are also so many kinds of librarians not just public librarians or mm-hmm. school librarians There are academic librarians and law librarians and hospital librarians, and they didn't know about any of these until they went to library school. Uh, And also that it was emphasized in library school ad nauseum that librarianship is not about books. And Mm. they say, this is very true. Even though as a collections librarian, I regularly spend thousands of our library's dollars on books, books are maybe 5% of my work. But my job still fills the bookish parts of my heart because it focuses on access to information, learning, research, and even social justice. Um, And that their relationship to reading has not diminished. So Kenneth, this person is not trying to talk you into becoming an academic librarian, especially if you've already decided against libraries, um, but suggest that maybe doing some more research so that you could fully understand all of the things that librarianship might have to offer could be a good idea. And they really just wanted to emphasize that there are just tons of book adjacent careers that you might not know about, and um, you might even consider being an archivist. So um, 
Their real recommendation here is that as you get to college, you reach out to the librarians and talk to them about what they know about librarianship careers. And that uh, she says librarians are usually very welcoming and truly happy to chat about <laughs> this stuff. So thank you, academic collections librarian for writing in. Um, there was no permission given in the email to share your name, so I'm not going to share it. Um, but thank you for that. Good luck, Kenneth. Um, Amanda, I thought I would just ask you for mm. your perspective on Kenneth's question as a person who's also been working in books now for, you know, a decade. Um, uh, how much money do you want to make, Kenneth? <laughs> I think is like a real thing. I don't, I don't want to be cynical or, you know, um, I don't know the word I'm trying to think of. I don't I don't want to come across as cynical or whatever. But when you're 18, I think it can feel a little bit like the financial question of like what you want your life to financially look like when you're in your 40s or something like that. It feels so far away and irrelevant. And you just want to like get a job that you love and all of that, which is great. Um, but I would say like as you're considering this question, do you want to retire eventually? Do you want to have comprehensive healthcare from an employer that provides it like these kinds of things aren't really brought up I don't think in conversations with people who are in college uh, uh, when they're starting when they're considering what they want to do with themselves but um, there are careers in books that will afford you like if you like we were talking about earlier if you want to go work at a publishing house as an intern at Penguin good luck with your cardboard box you know like you're gonna struggle. So uh, I would consider that I would consider all of these big kind of grown up seemingly far away financial questions um, before you like make a decision. I have been a bookseller. I made minimum wage. I had no health care. That's not uncommon. Um, and I was a grown person with two children. So that's something that you need to I don't know, factor in. I would also say like, um, like this, the academic librarian was saying, once you get into jobs that seem very bookish on the outside, very little of it actually has to do with like handling books. Like I work mm -hmm. for, you know, for Book Riot and I get questions all the time. Like, how do I get a job like that doing book things all day? And I'm like, actually, you know, my job is audience development, marketing, staff management. I spend very little time thinking about books during a, a regular day. It seems very bookish on the outside, but it's not. So, I mean, there are a lot of um, skills that you can get in college or, or majors that you can pursue that could be useful in any number of like book adjacent um, careers. But yeah, I hate to tell like an 18 year old, like, do you want healthcare though? But you gotta like really kind of think about that kind of thing. I don't know. That's my mom hat. My mom hat is like, <laughs> think about your medical insurance. <laughs> Beautiful, practical advice that I should not be surprised to hear. <laughs> to like hear if my kid were 18 and we're like, hey, mom, should I go be, you know, a bookseller at a bookstore or work at Barnes Noble or something? I'd be like, live your life. Also get a second job where you have health care. So, <laughs> that's what I would tell my own child. Mom mode mm -hmm. activated. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's hit a, another sponsor here before we get into the news of the week. All right. Well, this week began four days ago, but it feels like it's been 17 years long. Oh my and when this week began, I was like 40 minutes late to my desk on Monday morning. And by the time I sat down, you and the editorial team had already decided what to do about J.K. Rowling. Yeah. By the time you got to work, we had canceled J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I was like, well, this is going to be a day. <laughs> yeah, same. I sat down at nine and opened... You know, we have a, a Slack for our contributors. 
to talk to staff and each other and all of that. Um, and just so many messages from the contributors over who over the weekend had watched J.K. Rowling put her foot in it. And if you miss this, um, she made a bunch of uh, transphobic statements on Twitter, which she has done before. Um, but for some reason, like it was such like, right now, like this is the thing you want to be saying right now, you know, um, combined with how much she was just doubling down and refusing to listen to anyone. Um, and uh, it was just really bad. Anyway, so the contributors left us a bunch of messages for the staff over the weekend that was pretty much like, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I was like, that's a great question, because obviously we have to do something, you know. Um, so we did. We won't be covering J.K. Rowling anymore. Um including like news about movies if she writes another harry potter book like we're not going to talk about it no more harry potter quizzes sorry you know like um so we just can't you know you just can't she's just just stepped all the way in it i don't know how else to put it you know yeah it's probably overdue Mm -hmm. um i think we've been Well, we have been talking and thinking about this and the tension that it has existed there in the past was like, yes, J.K. Rowling is making it clear that she has abhorrent views Mm -hmm. about things. But these books mean so much to people. Harry Potter means so much to people. And Harry Potter content is a not small or has been a not small like cornerstone of bookish internet content. Like Mm -hmm. we could do a Harry Potter post every single day and like not run out of ideas or people who would be willing to click on them mm-hmm. <laughs> and up until now. Okay. Um, and that's, I think, been true for most bookish publications. And it, I think we just tipped this week into we're not serving our readers if we continue to promote her. And yeah. we're not serving members of our audience that are coming to Book Riot as a, a place that's safe and a place that strives for inclusivity and it's man it's such a disappointment like joanne get it together yeah why like just get it together she released another essay today because of course her tweets over the weekend got a lot of pushback a lot and she released another essay today that again was just a doubling down like i you don't even need to go read it it's just a reiteration of the things that she's been saying this whole time they're very damaging they're very transphobic they're just gross and awful Mm -hmm. um and it makes me feel good about what we decided to do. And this is not something we do often. Like, we do not, as a staff, sit down with each other and talk about who we're going to cancel. You know, like, we don't... We we let our contributors make the decisions about who they do and do not feel comfortable covering, with some exceptions, including now J.K. Rowling. Like, we don't want to be the, the bookish internet's, I don't know, purity police. Like, we don't want to be those people who are deciding who... Like, at what point is somebody bad enough that they should no longer be covered? You know, like, that's why we let our contributors make those choices for themselves, because it's a very personal thing. But there are some people who are just so abhorrent and who are still making money off of the Mm -hmm. things that they're talking about. Like, if someone is dead, that's one thing. Like, whether or not we cover, I don't know, who's somebody dead? Who's gross? Mark Twain, you know? Whether or not we cover Mark Twain doesn't matter. He's not making money off it. But if we continue to promote J.K. Rowling's book, she's going to continue to profit and then use that money, assumedly, for supporting her like transphobia and we don't want to be a part of that so i don't know we got a lot we got a little bit of pushback on twitter when we made this announcement from like a bunch of whatever nimrods in like the corners of the internet and we're like well are you going to cancel everyone you don't agree with no we're not you know we're just not but there does come a point where an author's stated views and what they're going to do with the money that they use or that they get from you know their profits 
harm our readers and harm our contributors. And we would be nothing without both of those groups of people. So, you know, and of course, JK Rowling doesn't care if we cover her stuff or not. That's fine. But we don't care about her either. We care about our community. So that's why we made that choice. And I don't know. I just want to make it clear that like, not every, we don't sit around counseling people, right? Like this was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. Um, And also, I think it's important to say that if the Harry Potter books have meant something to you and been an important part of your reading life or your family's reading life, like you don't have to decide you hate Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Now you get to decide what you want your relationship to these books to be. Um, You get to decide, like, are you ever giving a Harry Potter book as a gift Mm -hmm. again? One of the reasons that we talk about these kinds of things is so that people who like aren't plugged into the literary internet in the way that we are can become aware of what authors are doing and then make more informed decisions about whose books you buy and who you support with your dollars or who you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been some great statements this week from like other literary properties that are built around Harry Potter. One of them is a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text um, that basically said like, you know what, JK Rowling, like these books belong to us now. These Mm -hmm. books belong to your readers now. And we're going to take these stories and continue to love them, but we're done with you. Um, And that's certainly another way to go on it. So I think anytime we have one of these conversations, it's a from what like from where Book Riot sits and from what we're doing, it's such an interesting line to try to walk of saying like, this is where we've come down, as you were saying, Amanda, because of what is important to us about protecting our readers' trust, um, protecting our community, having this be a place that our contributors feel heard and safe and valued, and also acknowledging that there are other ways to thread this needle. And other readers who also find J.K. Rowling's statements abhorrent are going to make different decisions about their relationship to Harry Potter. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to burn your Gryffindor pajama pants. No, like, you don't, you don't have to <laughs> you know? go get your t- Harry Potter tattoo removed, you know? Right. Like, it meant what it meant to you, and she can't take that away from you. So, no, I mean, I don't, not that she's trying to, but ugh, she's the worst. <laughs> like, it's just the worst. It really, just, it really is. It's shocking to me. It's so shocking to me the, the the way that she refuses to budge at all on any of the stuff that she said. And for somebody who is who who wrote, you know, and now I'm just ranting, but like Harry Potter is problematic in a lot of ways, and that's fine. But it has, I think, to millennials especially, was maybe the first thing we read that was like social justice. You know, like this is a book that is a, an allegory for defeating Nazis, which is relevant to us right now <laughs> and meant a lot to a lot of people. And the problems around it and the stuff that she said doesn't have to take that away from any of us. Um, so just don't give her any more money, maybe. <laughs> but like your tattoo is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, speaking of money, a thing that happened on the internet this week uh, is that our writer named L.L. McKinney started a thread called Publishing Paid Me, hashtag Publishing Paid Me, where she encouraged white authors to share what they got for their books, debuts as well. Um, 
folks had told her that they would be up for it and they were indeed Mm. up for it uh, in a like big moment of transparency you know just like in culture in general talking about how much money you make is not something that people do often or are comfortable with Um, in publishing like writers kind of whisper about their advances to each other you might hear some broad strokes about what kinds of advances are reasonable to expect or are common if you go to like writers conferences or you see the announcements of you know like seven figure advances a couple of times a year in Publishers Weekly that are and who those are going to. Um, but it's just not talked about. And as publishing is uh, facing its own reckoning, I think, in the way that many industries right now, um, just the world in general, uh, or the US especially in general, are being called into a bigger and deeper and more transparent conversation about issues uh, of race and racism and systemic inequality. This thread revealed all kinds of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, I, I wonder- Jim, the Jasmine Ward one was was the most shocking to me. Yeah. The Jasmine yes. Ward for Salvage the Bones, she got twenty k, which won a National Book Award. And then for her next book, which I think was Sing Unburied Sing, she had to mm-hmm. change publishers before she would find someone to give her six figures. She's a National Book Award winner, like. What? <laughs> I cannot. I can't wrap yeah, my head that, around that. That twenty k for Salvage the Bones, which like that's high for debut literary mm-hmm. fiction, twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. But then, right, she went on to win the National Book Award and had to fight to get a hundred thousand dollars for her next book. Um, that's really astonishing. Um, bonus points. Or just deep, I guess not even bonus points, like my deep thanks to her for talking about that. <clears throat> and in a in a moment of, um, I think, real solidarity, very highly paid white writers uh, turned out to share their advances, um, acknowledging that like publishing houses have this policy of not commenting on advances. Sometimes it's considered part of an NDA, not to talk about how much money you were paid. And folks like John Scalzi Mm -hmm. were like, you know what, there's no risk to me because I'm a rich white man um, of talking about this. And he, uh, his, the comparison between him and N.K. Jemisin, I think is a really astonishing one here too, that um, most recently he signed a deal that was $3.4 million Mm. for 13 books. Uh, N.K. Jemisin, who is the first writer to win the Hugo for all three books in a trilogy, was paid $25,000 for mm. each of the books in that. I just can't. <laughs> you know, I actually, I feel like this is on us a little bit. Like, this is such a tangly knot. The What authors get for advances is such a tangly knot of expectations because mm-hmm. they're paying somebody an amount based on how many books they think they're going to sell once the book is published, right? And the assumption that if we buy this book by this black author, it's not going to have as wide an audience as if we bought a book by a white author. Therefore, they get a smaller advance because we're not going to sell as many copies, like, is not wrong, historically. Because we as readers don't like to read books by black people. You can look at the New York Times bestseller list, except for like this week, which is all black <laughs> authors, which is awesome. Um, and it's it's very racist. You know, Book Riot's been on this horse since day one. For eight years, we've been talking about how people need to diversify their reading. We need to send messages to publishers that even um, even people who are like, who people are willing to read outside of their community or outside of their bias. Like readers want diverse stories, but we have to order the books and buy the books and pay the money for the books so that publishers will get the message and start giving bigger advances. 
So not to I mean, excuse I, publishing at all. It's crap. <laughs> it's like complete garbage that N.K. Jemisin only got 75K for like this amazing series. Yeah, it's... It is. I mean, it is like, right. It it takes multiple pieces of a system to make a system Mm -hmm. and how readers spend their money and how an unconscious bias and racism show up in that in publishing is super valid. I think this is really, really, it really rests in publishing, though, because Mm -hmm. a book advance is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, true. It's a book advance isn't just how many copies of this book we think people will buy. It's how many copies of this book we're committed to trying to sell and marketing budgets. Exactly. So um, I and I keep I always go back to how Hachette had published an ebook about the making of a bestseller about the Chad Harbach baseball novel that I the art of fielding. That's what it was called, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They paid it. I don't remember a million dollars, maybe a couple million dollars advance for this debut literary novel about baseball um, marketed the hell out of it. It was selected as a BEA editor's pick it got a bajillion galleys there was a huge marketing push and before the book was even published Hachette had issued an ebook that they were also selling about the making of a bestseller Mm. (laughs) like this is the most like hashtag because publishing story (laughs) (laughs) baseball (laughs) right right like you spent a couple million dollars on a book in the like you paid a couple million dollars in advance to make that book exist. And so now you have to sell enough copies to justify having made the decision to pay a million dollars for the book. So you've got to spend a few million dollars marketing it. And then publishing is all uh, surprised and delighted that that book they very intentionally turned into a bestseller was made a bestseller. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if somebody would decide to give N.K. Jemisin $3.4 million for 13 books over 10 years, I think we would start to see a lot more marketing of N.K. Jemisin's books. And then it would just be so surprising, Amanda, sure. that more people would be buying them and reading them. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's the same thing with, like, American Dirt getting a seven-figure advance. You know, like, why would they do that? Well, why do you think, Karen? <laughs> Why do you think they gave her so much money? Um, Because they're going to flog the heck out of it. And it worked, right? Like that book, even after the controversy, and even after everybody, everybody in the book world spoke out against American Dirt, it's still a bestseller. It's still a bestseller. And it's because Amy Einhorn, who gave us the help, you know, like it's it's a formula. She's Mm -hmm. the one who signed that book. So they know what they're doing. Yeah, so you can search the hashtag publishing paid me on Twitter. We'll have a link to the original thread in the show notes. Um, and there uh, were some pieces about it this week uh, in the New York Times, as well as in Publishers Weekly. Um, publishing employees themselves spoke up this week in a moment of action. Do you want to tell us about that? Okay, it's not a walkout because nobody's at work. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a walk away. Yeah, so like on Monday, it was about 1,100 people who worked in publishing across all the big five houses um, took like a day of action, I think is what they were calling it, where like they would put up an away message on their email um, talking about how their employer has been complicit in um, upholding systems of racism and publishing and that they weren't going to be answering emails that day. And like there's a lot of different moving parts because some people are still quarantines and not going into the office so like what protest looks like right now is eternally fascinating anyway so that happened and like they responded <laughs> the publishers responded um which i didn't know i didn't know if that was if they were going to get any any answer 
since it wasn't, you don't have the drama of, mm-hmm. you know, 1,200 people standing outside of the flat. I don't know why I'm picking on the Flatiron building, but like standing outside of the Flatiron building like they did when they did the walkout for the Woody Allen book. Um, so I didn't know, you know, is something that somebody putting up an away message going to do anything? But apparently it did. So like Penguin Random House released a letter to their employees where like the board acknowledged that they were right to do this and gave a bunch of action items um that they were going to do and like they're going to make there's a company-wide read of how to be an anti-racist and all this kind of stuff and Hachette did kind of the same thing I've talked about like in changes that are upcoming um and Simon and Schuster I think Harper Collins and Macmillan were the only two that didn't respond mm-hmm. um so yeah it like move the needle i guess and i will say i saw some people being like well they're not saying exactly how many people they're going to hire or like exactly what they're going to do like how many more books by black authors they're going to publish this year and like again these are giant corporations like they're not going to tell you they can't they just can't swerve that fast like they just can't they've got so many internal audits to do and like their hr department has to talk to their age to this other hr department you know like it's going to take so much work legal is going to have to look at everything yeah so (laughs) i encourage people who saw their responses and were maybe discouraged by the lack of speed with which penguin random house is moving to like maybe just take a beat you know because we're 15 people at, at book riot and we still take a while to make moves because you just have to like there's so many moving parts there's so many people involved and for this giant company to even admit that they need to hire more mm-hmm. people of color at all and to say that they're going to do an audit and release numbers and then make efforts hiring processes take forever so you know i think we need to wait and see before we jump down their throats that this wasn't enough yeah and i think we would both agree that like some skepticism here or suspicion is totally justified and comes from a very earned place because it's not the first time that publishers have made statements about recognizing a lack of diversity, recognizing that they need to do better. Um, Every year when PW does the um, salary survey, like or releases the results of the salary survey, which is really more than salary, but about the demographic makeup of publishing and how much people in different demographic groups make. Publishers sort of talk about that. The Vita account has led to some of those things. We Need Diverse Books has led to things that I think that um, minds and hearts have been changing over time in publishing's like corporate structures about these things, but the action has been lacking. And so yeah. being skeptical that this will produce anything different is totally valid. valid. This is also the most detail that we have seen. And it's, I think, the first promise of actual transparency about releasing statistics to employees mm-hmm. um, and talking about what their workforce looks like and coming to a plan that will include some numbers. So I'm, I concur. Um, I think we're, we're seeing this moment right now just in the country where we're finding out a lot of gross things about a lot of businesses um, that we are deciding not to support. We're seeing a lot of businesses speak up for the first time in support Mm -hmm. of inclusivity, specifically in support of Black lives. And there's this hovering question of, is it performative or is it real? And we do, I think in most cases, we won't know. We don't know. Yeah, you just can't know. Especially like the bigger the corporation is, the longer it will take probably to know because like even once let's say Hachette releases their plan in detail 
I'm going to assume that that plan is something that will take years to implement yeah. fully. Mm-hmm. And it, that means it will be years to see, do they implement it fully and what are the results? Um, so giving some space for that change and that work to happen um, is where I'm trying to be personally. Yeah. And I think it's really telling that um, I'm looking at this Publishers Weekly article about this, and it says that PRH is conducting an audit of its publishing programs to set a baseline from which it can grow the number of books it publishes by diverse authors, which means they don't have one already, Mm -hmm. which means they don't know. Like Penguin Random House does not know how many of their books are coming out that are by different. Like they're not paying attention. And the fact Mm -hmm. that they will now, assuming they do, right? Like they need to actually be accountable for this. It's a big deal. I think that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, And I keep thinking about like, how long it takes to get somebody promoted, you know, mm-hmm. and how I, I can't I can't decide, you know, if they come back in a year and have hired X number of black and brown people to work at Penguin Random House, but have not promoted anyone into management positions is in a year. Is that too long? Is two years too long? Like, I just don't I don't know. I don't know. Like, I it makes me feel weird. <laughs> it makes me feel weird. It's like, like obviously the, the and that because this is a thing that we've talked about before. Like hiring black and brown people is not good enough. You need to have black and brown people in positions of power in companies. But if you're promoting from inside and you are a racist company that has just started hiring black people, how long do we are you know people expected to wait before you start promoting them? No idea. Yeah, I mean it took decades and it's still in process for women Mm -hmm. to start cracking into like the upper levels of corporate life and we should we should not be sitting in the year 2020 talking about the beginning of a movement to progress black people into higher levels of corporate life but that is where we are Uh, apparently (laughs) (laughs) and it will take a while like that this is one of those things that does have to come from the top down like top executives retire or leave and people of color get promoted into into those positions or into positions that line them up for those positions. And that sort of gradual shifting up needs to happen along with more baseline hiring of people of color, you know, into entry level so that they're in the pipeline and eligible for promotions so that when there's a spot that opens, you have someone who's not a white person who can be a candidate for that position. Um, And this is uncomfortable to talk about. And I think very difficult to have nuanced conversations around, especially older people who are not like on the internet, Mm -hmm. learning, learning the language Mm -hmm. um, and experiencing, experiencing the movement as something that they can see and participate in, in some way, and not just something that's like on the news. Uh, And that's their work to do and to have to learn about it and read the books and talk to people and like take whatever trainings they need to take. I will be very interested in what um, like what learning I don't know that we'll ever know, but like I would love to know what the like learning is that's going to be happening at the top corporate levels of these publishing houses um, so that people aren't just like, yes, we're hiring more people of color because that's the thing that we need to do. But how do then you create a workplace that is a safe space for these people of mm-hmm. color that you're hiring um, for them to build careers a- in a place that they feel respected and valued and can do good work. I think what I want is for these publishers, the three of the big five who made who responded, I want there to be 
scheduled accountability. Like, mm. I want in a year, on June 11th, 2021, I want an article in Publishers Weekly from these three publishers about what they've done. Like, that's what I want. Because you can't, like you were saying, you can't just say, oh, yeah, we'll be better. Ooh, and then not deliver and expect to like get off the hook now maybe you right. could have like people will forget you know six months ago but it, this is different like this time is different mm-hmm. and i want them to do it <laughs> like i need you to actually do the thing <laughs> um so yeah i want them to tell them themselves a little bit yeah and to the folks behind the day of solidarity and everybody in publishing who participated, may your efforts continue to succeed. Mm. All right. Well, just into the land of, you know, ending with a story that's the kind of thing we would talk about just as cool book related tech, but we're specifically talking about it this week because of COVID students in uh, which school district? I just saw it. Um, it's in Virginia, Montgomery, Montgomery County. County. Yeah. I don't yeah. know who that is. It's uh, I guess near Christiansburg, Virginia. Okay. So not super close to us, but no. like nothing in Virginia is terribly far away. Um, <laughs> are going to have their summer reading books delivered to them from the library by drones. That's cool. <laughs> the future is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a drone delivery service called Wing. It's owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet. And uh, Kelly Pasek, she's a middle school librarian in Christiansburg, was one of the very first customers of it last year after seeing how quickly her household goods and meals were delivered by drone. Because now we are in mm-hmm. the season finale or the series finale of Parks and of Recreation. Parks and Rec- <laughs> um, she d- petitioned the company to take on library books, too. And the people at Wing said yes. And the first books fly out this week. <laughs> I love it. Love to see it. Love to see it. <laughs> and there's a little picture here of her packing the, I guess, drone delivery boxes with the books. And they have little handles at the top that I I want to see this in action. Uh, if you are listening to this and you happen to have a kid who's getting their library books delivered by drone, please take a video. Uh, oh, it beat Amazon Prime's Air to the mm. public testing milestone. Interesting. All right. You can it delivers packages of up to three pounds. So you couldn't get like maybe not like your whole holds list delivered by drone. Right. But like one or two. A couple paperbacks. Yeah. This is cool. It's exciting. Yeah. And uh Miss Pasek is doing a lot of the work herself. She's receiving students' book orders via a Google form and then she seeks out the books that she needs from any of the district's libraries, packages them up, takes them to Wing's facility, and then the drones do their thing. It's amazing. It's pretty cool. Gonna be keeping our eye on Wing, I guess. Now I'm gonna find out like, are they delivering near me? Can I get something? Mm-hmm. What do I need? I feel like my dog would try to take it out of the sky. Oh, my gosh. Jasper would just be like, what is this? And I'm afraid of it. (laughs) She would think it was like a squirrel for her to consume. (laughs) And then she would try to eat it. It's been a week, Amanda. It has. There's still a couple days left. Thank you for joining me this week. Listeners, the links to all the shows that all, all the shows, all the articles that we discussed will be in the show notes, which you can find at bookriot.com slash listen. If you have feedback or questions or whatever, you can send those to podcast at bookriot.com and 
we will check that regularly as we do. Hope that you all are staying safe out there. And we'll be back next week, maybe with more news of toppled statues. (laughs) Have a good one. Bye.